Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Meserve. Lots going on in the world of intelligence and national security this week, as always, from the war between Israel and Hamas to Republican objections to a congressional commission to study the January 6th Capitol riot. Over at our Spy Talk news site, we've also published an alarming report on gains by Islamist militants across Africa. Check it out on Substack. But on this week's podcast, I talk with Barry Meyer, author of a new and controversial book, Spooked, The Trump Dossier, Black Cube, and the Rise of Private Spies. The way I grew up as a journalist, and the way I hope you grew up as a journalist, was not to... report things that were unproven, but now it's become sort of commonplace to do that. And Mm -hmm. that becomes a fertile breeding ground for the types of rumors and, you know, raw intelligence and all other kinds of schlock that um, these private intelligence agencies traffic in. But first, this week in Washington, we're seeing the National Guard pack up and ship out. They've been deployed here since the January 6th storming of the Capitol. And as Jeff mentioned, Congress is still hemming and hawing about whether or not to create a bipartisan 9-11 type commission to examine what happened, what went wrong, and who's responsible. It passed the House with 35 Republican votes, but Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell showed his hand this week and it's now clear the proposal is going to have a tough time getting through the Senate. I've made the decision to oppose the House Democrats' slanted and unbalanced proposal. One government entity that's getting a lot of scrutiny in the aftermath of January 6th is the Department of Homeland Security's Office of Intelligence and Analysis, known as I&A. I talked about it with Juliet KM. You've probably seen her on CNN. She was an assistant secretary for intergovernmental affairs at DHS during the Obama administration. And before that, she was Homeland Security Advisor for the state of Massachusetts. As intelligence operations go, how seriously is the Office of Intelligence and Analysis regarded? Amongst its federal government competitors, friends, cousins, the CIA, National Counterterrorism Center, it was always uh, secondary or tertiary. A part of that was its newness, it, even relative, even though it's 20 years old now, uh, is is you know it's just it was the new kid on the block. Part of it was I think its its um, expertise and its its value add. Uh, how much was it really bringing to the table? Uh, and I think, you know, a third piece is that its consumers were just so different than other intelligence agencies. I mean, DHS, people think it's like, you know, you know oh, this federal, I mean, DHS's core function is to satisfy the needs of the homeland. So its, its constituency is state and local governments, first responders, territorial and tribal. That's just a different orientation than than, than what we think of as a CIA agent. So part, so part of that impacted personnel. I mean, if you're a young person who you know, wants the quote unquote sexiness, I guess I would say of, of an intelligence agency uh, or, or covert operations, you're, you're not going to DHS because that's not its mandate. 
its mandate is we, we need to satisfy the homeland needs uh, of, of what's going on. And so what exactly is its job? What yeah, is it so that's providing? A, those that's, a, that's a good question. And I think, I think it needs a reorientation. Um, uh, so there's, there's the, there's the short term problem, which is, as we, as, as all of us have been discussing, which is, you know, it, it, uh, uh, under President Trump, it focused its efforts on, on the border. I think the longer term issue is what do we make of a, what should be a domestic intelligence gather uh, uh, analysis, right? What does that mean? And I think DHS's best, INA's best future is to really focus on its constituency and provide the kind of analysis that other agencies are doing. I mean, in other words, it really should be satisfying its constituency, which is the state, local, territorial, and tribal, through much more rigorous analytical uh, uh, products that are delivered. So we know when they did those before, uh, uh, we know they didn't do it for January 6th, and they should have. I have to admit, I am talking to you as a person who also had been a state homeland security advisor. So I was a customer of what DHS was providing. And, um, and you know, did it tell me anything that I didn't already know from reading the paper, just being somewhat sophisticated in the space? Often not. Uh, and I think it could get more analytical, focus on the analytical side uh, 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 rather than the intelligence side. Uh, so and why I, did it fail to do yeah. this around January 6th? It was so, all over. Oh, it was all media. over. And, I mean, you couldn't and, miss this. Exactly. And, and, and well, you couldn't miss it because we were reading, uh, Trump's Twitter feed. I mean, this is, this is where it, you know, uh, you know, why a commission or some sort of independent fact-finding body needs to be found. Cause there's two agencies whose conduct you cannot explain under any rational basis. So for the first is of course DOD and, and what happened the day of. But the second is DHS and the lead up to January 2nd to prepare its customer like cap the Capitol Police uh, and, and DC authorities and DC National Guard uh, with the right tools. It wasn't like you had to, exactly what I said, you didn't have to do a lot of intelligence, right? It's there. So the explanation can be from the, the, the um, the, the semi-benign, I would say, which is uh, um, it was, you know, that the, the, the idea that this was going to happen and that the president wanted it to happen um, was so, um, uh, like, it was so hard to, for them to even fathom that, like, you know, that they just sort of were, were, were wishing it away, which is what you don't want from an intelligence agency. You can't wish away. I think a, a potential bad explanation is that the leadership at the department said the the president is on a mission, and we will at you know we will we will uh, uh, we might not grease the runway for that mission, but we will make that mission easier for him. And I we don't have the answers to that those those, those questions. But if it's political, it's certainly not the first time INA has been accused of that. You will remember back in the day, they issued a report warning of domestic extremism, yeah. and they were forced to retract yeah. that. That was my first, those were my first days at the department. I mean, it was basically the second, you know, we were, I mean, so let's go back to, uh, uh, to um, uh, uh, 2008, and this is, uh, this is actually 2009, uh, Secretary Napolitano comes in. This is still, uh, this is pre-ISIS. 
we started to have some of the uh, lone wolf attacks. The wars are still going on. The, the, the president comes in on an, essentially the new president, Obama comes in on an anti-war message. And the secretary, you know, took an accounting of, of what was going on in the homeland. And part of that member was engendered by the first African-American president ever in the United States. The, the threat matrix around that president and his children and his wife was greater than previous presidents because you had the white supremacy. So they, we, we put it out and, uh, and then, you know, no better way to put it, folded. Uh, that that the, the Republican response, and it was, was, well, we can't touch this. It gets too close to First Amendment and Second Amendment uh, rights. Uh, that, that begins to change, obviously, over the course of the Obama administration when people you know, realize we can't deny this anymore. But remember, there was there was the ISIS attacks too. So there were multiple threat streams of of uh, for for terrorism. So you know they they shared a platform. By the time Trump comes in, the the ISIS threat has been uh, the ISIS homeland threat has been relatively muted for a, a, a number of reasons that may have nothing to do with homeland security, but more with what's going on uh, uh, with ISIS. And, uh, and you see the rise of white supremacy. And, and part of that rise is the internet. And the, you know, I, I often say there are no lone wolves. These guys find each other. And so it's, it's, a, it's a wrong intellectual phrase. But the other is, and I'm not shy about this, the president was, was cultivating the terror, right? I mean, we, the president, the President Trump uh, there, uh, there was a frequent narrative about President Trump that he was a both siders person. He wasn't. I mean, if you actually would, he was on one side. Like he wasn't a both sides person. He was on one side and but, he nurtured that. But no matter where he was, yes. if the department and specifically this office is yes. going to do its job, can it be politicized? No, no. And that's where the new leadership needs to come in a new undersecretary, new people focused on uh, the real threat environment. And you're seeing that now, Jane. I mean, you're seeing, you know, the FBI isn't shy anymore. DHS isn't shy anymore. They've come out with a number of reports. And people are like, oh, those reports are... What those reports do is they're read by the former me as a Homeland Security person, whatever. They, they, they do a couple... One is they help guide resources. So... There are multiple threats. Yeah. And so, okay, now they say we're going to focus on domestic extremism. Yeah. More about that discussion in just a minute. But does that mean we're taking our eye off the threat of international terrorism? Right. The purpose of the Department of Homeland Security was that was that you have to chew gum and rub your belly at the same time, right? That, that there are multiple hazards uh, from climate change to cyber attacks. And even within radicalization, there's there's multiple um, hazards. So I don't think it's a, I think it's a, I, you know, I think, but then at some stage, policymakers have to look at that intelligence and say, right, what are going to be our greatest priorities? And I think right now, just looking at, I'm not going to say nothing's going to happen bad, but looking at the data um, and looking at how, you know, the perpetuation of the lie is really about radicalization is really about violence, which, which we have to make clear that, that the lie exists on the threat of violence, uh, that this is, the, this is the right priority right now. So if this is the priority, does the Office of Intelligence and Analysis have the wherewithal to yeah. cope with it? Does it have the manpower? Does it have the money? Does it have the muscle? Yeah. 
So um, I don't, I'm going to be honest with you, I don't know the answer to that question. One is the leader, the new leadership is not firmly in place in, in an accounting of whether INA is fixable, the, which is the question right now is, 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 you know, if you got rid of DHS INA, what would you lose? And so I actually firmly still believe that there is no intelligence apparatus in the federal government that services this unique quote unquote client, which is the homeland, right? And, and that will be lost. And I came to rely on it for a variety of, of reasons. It helped me with budgeting and helped me with priority assessments. So, so part of that is like, can they get, can they, can they focus on that in a non-political way that's helpful? And then, I mean, the, the last thing I say is, and then make sure the analytical input is out, output is actually helpful. And I think that's where you may want, you know, new leadership, or you will want new leadership and uh, uh, and and resources. This is not rocket. I mean, I hate to say it's not rocket science. We know how to do this. It's just a matter of prioritizing it within the department. So let me just push back a little bit. Yeah. The FBI obviously is monitoring many of the yeah. same things. Why not create an entity within the FBI, which has the responsibility to push out, push out that information uh, to the, right. the local and state authorities, it's, as opposed to trying to reinvent the wheel over a DHS with people who you've said aren't perhaps the most skilled and the most motivated? Right. So I, so this is a great question. And one of the reasons is, is legal. And, and I, I still firmly believe in this that once the, the, F, the FBI has its, its resources, its focus, which is generally uh, going to be case-based, but intelligence is not, you know, the, the, the in, intelligence is also about streams of intelligence or threat, you know, what, you know, what we call threat assessments, right? So that you're, and that is where the FBI, you kind of don't want the FBI in. In other words, their focus has always been case-based. You want to have more rigorous standards for you know what they're able to do, where I think DHS, because you know it has component agencies that are feeding it its intelligence, is not tied. And I don't mean to say that it's illegal. It is just a different kind of 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 uh, uh, of analysis than that the FBI would did. INA has, does not have a perfect record no. when it comes to civil liberties. Yes. So they're talking now in this new effort to cope with domestic extremism about pairing up with tech companies and yeah. academic institutions and others. Are you worried that they're not going to respect the line yeah. of yes. free speech? Yes, I am. I mean, part of it is because it's a very, very, you know, it's, it's a, uh, the, the lines are, are somewhat unclear. Here's my basic rule. The, the federal government should be no more hindered than you and I in accessing, you know, information from, uh, from groups and, and the reason and from academic institutions, from research groups. Now you can't, it, it shouldn't be the sole resource because who knows what my research is like? Who knows what that firm is actually doing? So, but but if they're putting it out to the public, absolutely, right? So that seems to me to be a no-brainer. Where I where I'm worried, and it's just not clear what's going on, is are they directing that research? Are they directing what the tech companies are looking at because they, they can get around some rules? That seems to me to be legally suspect, and the DHS has certainly got to know it, if you tell a tech company to utilize, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, to utilize 
uh, things that you couldn't do if they were in-house. I think my, honestly, Jim, when I saw that article, I had probably the same reaction as you. And the fact I haven't heard much about it means it either was someone not being exactly clear about what was going on. Um, in fact, honestly, I think DHS, as, as we saw with January 6th, I think DHS would be a, a, a really good place to have those, uh, to have that outreach to, you know, the, 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 what we call the Homeland Security Enterprise, right? The private sector, churches, synagogues, what, you know, NGOs, all of them that, that have a subject matter expertise. When I think about January 6th, um, I don't know if you know this story, but ADL, uh, had been monitoring what was going on. And, and people like me and you and stuff were like, are, are people paying attention? But ADL had an internal report that was monitoring and they were so upset that they couldn't get traction with the federal government. You know, look, this is happening. We're seeing people organize, we're seeing money flow because ADL can do that and it's, it's, it's legal, right? They can, they can look online and, and see. Um, that they released the report publicly, that they said, we just got to get this out there. And I remember reading that and thinking, you know, ADL and the Anti-Defamation League is, you know, they're, they're, first of all, this is outside their normal scope. So they must be particularly worried. Uh, but also this, this, is, this is a big deal that the government's not responding. Is it also true that as useful a tool as social media has been in tracking some of these individuals and groups and investigating what happened on January 6th, that it's becoming less and less useful because these individuals and groups are moving to encrypted yeah, apps and other sorts of platforms where it's just going to be harder yeah. to monitor what they're saying? Yes, but here's now the good news side. One of the important things about what's happening in the federal government and in particular, so forget the commission, that's like, you know, politics. Don't forget it. I wish it were going to exist, but I'm not optimistic now. But if you look at the core, if you look at um, the arrests and the deplatforming of Donald Trump and the, and the, and the, and the Joe, you know, the president Biden sort of we're all better than this, right? And the and the and the and what you're seeing from the communities around these guys. So over 400 arrests, right? That, in all the data I've seen since, that has had a tremendous impact on the one thing I care about most, which is recruitment. Because if you want a terrorist organization to die, which this essentially is, you deprive it of money, which is happening, and you deprive it of men or future men. If and and um, and you know and and terrorist groups and this is you know this is true of Al Qaeda and ISIS. Terrorist groups find it very hard to recruit if they don't have a winning narrative. So part of our job, all of us, is uh, to create to to continue with that losing narrative. And I think that's really important because uh, recruit recruitment. Uh, is uh, the lifeline of these organizations. And if they're having problems recruiting because either people think it's not, a, you know, people now realize that this wasn't a joke or Trump's not coming to save us, that's important. Is there a problem with extremism within the Department of Homeland Security? Yes. Yeah, I think so. And is that something that INA can help investigate or is that fault of someone else? No doubt in my mind. Uh, that there is an element, I don't know how to put a number behind it, uh, that, uh, that is not only, you know, that, that might be against this new, uh, uh, semi-new uh, presidency and leadership, 
but that uh, view themselves at war with, uh, with uh, 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 you know, a democratic process. Uh, and and that, ha- that to me is like, that just like, that's not explainable. That just has to get weeded out. So once again, you think INA does have a role. It does have a function. We Lots shouldn't be shutting it down. No, I mean, I think, I think not yet. I mean, I think, I think, you know, this is early days. People know its limitations. Uh, if it, if it, if it goes away, let me put it a different way. If it goes away, if the secretary says, you know, this, it's, it's not workable. What I want to capture of what its, its value add is, is analytical, uh, uh, intelligence analysis for a unique customer, which is, which is us. Right. I mean, it is, you know, it's, 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 it, you know, CIA does not think about what the mayor of Dubuque, Iowa, you know, wants to know, right. That, in fact, you don't want them thinking about that. And I think if we can, if we can get back to those basics, or at least uh, maybe not back, cause it's, it may have never been there, but if that could be the core mission, instead of being in competition with the CIA or the FBI or doing, or being political, it's still, uh, 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 savable, I would say, but we got to do it quickly. Barry Meyer is a highly decorated investigative reporter, a member of a New York Times team that won the 2017 Pulitzer Prize in international reporting, and he's a two-time winner of the George Polk Award for investigative reporting. He also authored a piercing book on the Sackler family and the origin of the opioid epidemic. His new book, Spooked, the Trump Dossier, Black Cube and the Rise of Private Spies, delves into some poisonous relationships between the hired guns of corporations, oligarchs, powerful executives, and the news media. Barry Meyer, it's a pleasure to have you here on the Spy Talk podcast. First of all, what is a private spy? Why do you say there's been a rise of them and what's driving that? Well, Jeff, first of all, thanks so much for having me on. It's always a pleasure to see you. Uh, so the way I'm defining private spies is very broadly. Um, in the past uh, decade, there's been a boom in the use of private intelligence firms or corporate investigations firms. And uh, they've been largely hired by the wealthy, the controversial political parties, you name it, Mm -hmm. to to dig up dirt on their opponents, uh, to find compromising information, uh, to to find information that could be used in litigation against them or in public relations against them. And, you know, I use the term spy very briefly because even if these firms will say to you, well, we don't spy ourselves, we're not spies, Uh, they will often use the services of people who are spies, you know, kind of contract out the kind of sleazier aspects of the work, if you will, or the spookier aspects of the work to people who do spy. And you say there's been a rise of them. Is this very recent and what's driving it? Uh, just demand. I mean, you know, increase the litigation, the, 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 the shift of oligarchs from Russia and Eastern Europe to London. You know, there has been a, you know, massive litigation uh, in Europe that o- oligarchs have launched against each other. 
where they're constantly utilizing the services of private intelligence agencies, and things have just gotten nastier. I mean, you know, you have cases like Harvey Weinstein, where he hired four different private intelligence firm to try to intimidate or squash uh, women who were making allegations against him. And, and reporters who were reporting on him as well. In fact, some of my former employer, employee, the, uh, the New York Times, yes. Now, the, you focus a lot on the relationships between private spies, corporate spies, and the news media. Uh, it occurred to me this morning that the news business has been driven by tipsters since Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments after having spoken to the Lord. Politicians and government bureaucrats leak to reporters all the time. That's how we got the Pentagon Papers and other big stories. So what's different about these private spies? What's so odious about them? Well, I mean, this is, as you know, this has been going on forever. And I kind of trace the trajectory of that in the book. I mean, if you go back to the realm of political opposition research or oppo this started uh, back in you know seriously started back in the clinton years when when uh, bill clinton's campaign hired a private investigator to dig up dirt on women that were make, making you know allegations against him you know so-called bimbo eruptions what makes it different nowadays is that we're living in this hyper partisan uh, media environment so the, the, you know, the appetite for the media for this type of information uh, has blossomed. Uh, the number of outlets that exist has expanded and the willingness of hyperpartisan outlets, both on the left and the right, to suck this information in and spit it out um, has you know, exploded. I mean, you know, there's, you know, every time uh, people were, you know, in the years people were talking about the dossier and it flooded the, the steel dossier. Yeah, the steel dossier for three years, as you well know, uh, you know, the kind of tagline that people would always say is, well, you know, it says this and it hasn't been proven wrong yet. Uh, and, you know, the way I grew up as a journalist, and the way I hope you grew up as a journalist was not to Take report things, things on, that yeah. were unproven, but yeah. now it's become sort of commonplace to do that. And mm -hmm. that becomes a fertile breeding ground for the types of rumors and, you know, raw intelligence and all other kinds of schlock that um, these private intelligence agencies traffic in. I want to get back to the steel dossier uh, in a little bit. But um, we were talking about digging up dirt. You have so many examples of these firms digging up dirt on people. One of the most shocking to me uh, was the effort to dig up dirt on people in the Obama administration who had negotiated the Iranian nuclear deal. Could you describe that? Well, this is a black cube operation, you know, apparently. I mean, that's that's black cube. Let's black cube, the Israeli intelligence firm. I mean, that's the way it's been reported. I couldn't verify that, in fact, it was. But it appears that it was it was their sort of tactics. Uh, and it was sort of like run of the mill uh, black cube, whether it was them or not. And what and did they it, do exactly? Well, you know what black cube does? 
is that they dispatch operatives under, they create digital identities for operatives. So they create a, you know. False persona. Yes, false persona. They create a Facebook page, a LinkedIn identity, false employees, false friends, blah, blah, blah. So when you, Jeff Stein, or me, Barry Meyer, get an email from someone and we do a little Googling about them, they've got a visible identity on the internet. Was that operation to smear the Obama negotiators successful? Uh, It was not, as many of Black Cube's operations, if this indeed was a Black Cube operation, uh, uh, it wasn't successful. I mean, the people who were being, you know, the, the dangles, if you will, that were being made in front of these people, they didn't bite on it to their credit. Unfortunately, we do know that in other situations, particularly the Harvey Weinstein case, people did bite on the false personas that Black Cube was dangling in front of them. And, you know, basically what Black Cube and what, you know, firms like Black Cube does is run a con game. And it's nothing new. It's sort of like the oldest game in the book where you size up a mark, you decide how is this person vulnerable? Are they looking for a friend? Are they looking for a job? Do they feel like they're being mistreated in their current job? And so maybe then you'll approach them as a, you know, a job recruiter and try to extract information for them from them that way. That they can use against them. You describe so many uh, covert operations, let's call them, by private spies to smear a person's reputation. It's hard for me to pick out one or two in particular, but to, to put meat on the bone of this, this kind of work, would you single out one or two as the ones that really appalled you as successful efforts to smear a person's reputation? Well, I mean, one of the things, uh, one of the stories that I detail in the book involves uh, a firm owned by Jules Kroll, who was essentially the founder of the modern day corporate intelligence industry. And uh, some folks in his London operation, London office who did a lot of work for oligarchs were contacted by a client who had, an, who had financial interest in the asbestos industry. And as you know, asbestos is like a very deadly product. It's been banned in most countries, and, but it's still used in the um, developing part of the world. So there were public health advocates in England who were campaigning to seek a global ban on asbestos use. So in order to figure out what they were doing, um, an executive in the London office of this firm, which was called K2 Intelligence, uh, had a kind of broken, you know, out of luck, out of work, uh, comedy producer disguise himself as a maker of docu- investigative documentary films. And he was very interested in ones about public health. So he managed to basically inveigle his way inside this uh, group Movement of public to, health advocates and report, yeah, and yeah. report back to them. So, you know, you ha- it's not even just like smearing people publicly mm-hmm. it's sort neutralizing of neutralizing enemy yeah neutralizing or weaseling your way 
within into their ranks under a false identity so you can monitor and track what they're doing. And what was the outcome of that uh, operation? Was well, it successful? As it turned out, uh, Rob Moore, the person who was doing it after about three or four years, I mean, he says he, he sort of like started to be nauseated by what he was doing after a couple of months. But finally, after about three or four years, he decided that he would become a double agent and try to flip sides mm-hmm. and alert this anti-corruption group in London to what he was doing. It eventually all blew up. K2 intelligence ended getting sued and settled the case apparently to uh, limit the amount of reputational damage. Now you single out uh, a company called Fusion GPS, which was founded by two former Wall Street Journal reporters. You, you singled them out for a particular scorn. Why was that? What, what was it that they have been doing that merited so much of your attention? Well, I mean, I thought uh, tracing their stories of, of Glenn Simpson and, and Peter Fritsch uh, would be particularly interesting. When I started researching the book, I really didn't know very much about, you know, what they, what type of work they had done. But here were two individuals who had left the Wall Street Journal, which is a newspaper I also worked at before going to the Times. So they were leaving a profession I knew or a profession in which I had spent my life and entering a profession that I was now going to write about, about which I didn't know very much. And I thought, wow, this could be interesting. And so when Glenn started his original firm with a Washington Post reporter by the name of Sue Schmidt, their original concept was that they were only going to work for good guys, you know, for nonprofit foundations, for clients with legitimate beefs who were being wronged uh, by powerful interests. And, you know, Glenn came up with this, you know, marketing mantra, what he called journalism for rent. You know, we were going to bring the same standards of ethics and ethics of journalism. uh, But then you say they went off the rails. Well, they certainly, you know, they, they certainly, you know, Sue Schmidt eventually parted ways quite quickly with Glenn Glenn then joined ranks with Peter Fritsch, another former Wall Street Journal person. They formed Fusion GPS. And, you know, they started working on behalf of controversial actors like Theranos and a Russian-owned real estate firm. Uh, They started monitoring journalists to see what types of information they were getting from government agencies. And they started shopping oppo, of which the Steele dossier was just one example. So, you know, I guess uh, I've always considered, you know, that journalism, journalists, real journalists don't rent themselves out. And if you're renting yourself out, you're no longer a journalist. Well, let's talk about the Steele dossier a little bit then. you, you relentlessly attacked the credibility of the so-called Steele dossier, which we should explain was a compilation of raw intelligence assembled by a former head of MI6's Russia desk, Christopher Steele, alleging that the Trump 
campaign, members of the Trump campaign and Russian operatives had conspired to cooperate in the election of Donald Trump. I had lunch with a reliable intelligence source of mine the other day, and he said, well, the overall weight of the Steele dossier has proven to be true. What what was he talking about? He was talking about the general thrust of Russian interest in getting Donald Trump elected. That's what I say in my book as well. So I am not in any way, shape or form saying anything different. It says quite specifically in the book that the, you know, the general concept expressed in the Steele dossier that Russians, the Kremlin, was trying to influence the election is indisputable. Bipartisan Senate uh, committee has come out with that conclusion. We don't need intelligence operatives or sources to tell us that it's out there in the public. Well, the point that the point that I'm making is that what set the Steele dossier apart was the juicy allegations in it. The idea that there was a so-called P tape, the idea that Donald Trump, uh, that Michael Cohn, Donald Trump's lawyer went to Russia to meet you know, went to Prague, excuse me, to meet with Russians, that this guy Carter Page was being offered, you know, a chunk of a Russian oil company for his services. All these very specific allegations within the Steele dossier, and that's what people were really focused upon, have either, there's never been evidence to show that they're true, or they've been proven false. Mm-hmm. Now, you and you know the intelligence world as well as I do. And you know that raw intelligence is only that. It's a, a compilation of a, or a report uh, that is not a finished report. Uh, I once had a conversation with a CIA guy who had provided me with information and then called up a week later to ask me why I hadn't uh, gone with it. And I said, well, unlike you guys, I need two sources. You know, I mean, raw intelligence is is just that. It's not a finished, definitive intelligence report. And even finished intelligence reports say we assess this with such and such credibility. So it seems to me the problem wasn't in the Steele dossier itself. It was how it was used by the media. Would you agree with that? I, I think there were problems within the Steele dossier as well. Because I mean, the sources you know, like, were dodgy. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, so to what degree? I mean, to be fair to Christopher Steele, he told people, look, this is raw intelligence. Uh, but to what degree did he go out himself and try to ascertain how r- real that intelligence was, how solid? that intelligence was. I mean, it's great to send some guy out to Russia and have him go drinking with his buddies and then put all this stuff and, you know, in kind of all kinds of spy language in a report and say, blah, blah, blah. But one of the things I was very struck by uh, when it came to Christopher Steele is that at no point in time did he ever seek to meet with any of his collector's sources to gauge their credibility. 
What do you for mean themselves? about his collector's sources? Explain well, he that. had he had a collector, Igor Danchenko, the person he paid to go to Russia and meet with Sorsons, his agent there. Uh, the, Igor Danchenko met with a number of people, and it is their information that he then regurgitated back to Christopher Steele verbally. And Christopher Steele typed this up in these memos that became known as the dossier. So you as a reporter and I as a reporter, if we get this kind of secondhand stuff, are going to go back and try to figure out, well, where is this coming from? And can we assess the credibility Mm -hmm. of the person Mm -hmm. who is providing the information? Mm -hmm. Now, for whatever reason, Christopher Steele chose not to do that. And if I, if it was me and I believe that the information that I was being told what represented this massive th- threat to democracy, but so on and so forth, which it may have, I think I would have gotten out of my office and gotten on a plane and gone to meet with the people who were the original sources of the information? Yeah, essentially because he, if if only because he was being paid a lot of money to gather this information. Yeah, and plus, if it was real, if he believed, you know, if he believed it, it was real, and I'm not saying he didn't, but if he thought that what these folks were saying was real, wouldn't you want to make sure that you felt? 100 percent you know comfortable with the credibility of these sources that you had personally vetted these sources that you hadn't used a middleman to vet the sources a particularly good example of this is the most sensational part of the of the steel dossier was the so-called p tape uh you looked into that and the the sourcing on that was particularly dodgy can you explain that well, I mean, it was coming from all over the place. You know, it was coming from, you know, uh, Igor Danchenko's conversations with some manager at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel with, you know. In Moscow. In Moscow, things he was picking up from uh, chambermaids there. I mean, step back for a moment and, you know, think about what everyone was reporting. I wasn't, I didn't report about the Steele dossier, but, you know, that this was compromised. That that you know Vladimir Putin had something the P tape that he was holding over Donald Trump's head, and okay maybe he did, but like blackmail, you know, if you've got blackmail on somebody, the best way to make that work is for very few people to know about that. For you to know about that and for the person you're blackmailing to know about that. If everybody in Russia, in Moscow, in the Ritz-Carlton Hotel knows about that, well, your blackmail is really not that great. You mean that this was widespread rumor in, uh, around Moscow or at least at that hotel that uh, Donald Trump had engaged in? We don't have to go into a complete explanation of <laughs> right. of. Trump yeah, it's like well, and, and hookers or whoever he hired to pee right, on right. a bed, blah, blah, blah. So in your mind, this it, it was yeah, I mean, and, and basically, the, if you look at the Steele report, 
the people or look at Igor Danchenko's interview by the FBI, it's not everybody who's saying there was this videotape. People are saying, yeah, well, a lot of things go on in the Ritz-Carlton or uh, sure, people bring prostitutes to the Ritz-Carlton. And there's no or, doubt sure, that the KGB has cameras. Exactly. In the Ritz-Carlton. It's honeycombed with cameras. And yes. I mean, like that's common knowledge. So, you know, to kind of like use this as supporting information to bolster maybe one or two people saying, yeah, I heard there's a P tape uh, doesn't would never kind of cut it for us as journalists. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, speaking more about Fusion GPS, um, you 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 kind of hone in, you do hone in on your book on the relationship, the covert relationship between firms like Fusion GPS and reporters who use their information without attribution. And this makes its way into the press. Its founders, Glenn Simpson and Peter Fritsch, wrote a rebuttal the other day accusing you of hypocrisy, pointing out that you sought their help in your investigation of Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort's ties to Russian interests in Ukraine and other stories about the Trump campaign's dealing with Russians. They, re they reproduced your email exchanges with them. What's your, what's your response? Sure, I'm, I'm glad you're asking me that because when I first saw their rebuttal, I was scratching my head thinking, what the hell are they talking about? So the one email that they highlight where I'm reaching out to them about a court filing. The story behind that is this. Uh, in April of uh, 2016, if I remember correctly, um, Mike Isakoff wrote a story about a lawsuit that uh, Oleg Deripaska, a powerful Russian oligarch, had filed against uh, Paul Manafort uh, in the, the Virgin Trump campaign. Island. Yeah, the yeah. Trump campaign manager, although at that point, I don't know if he was a Trump campaign manager, but against mm -hmm. Paul Manafort um, uh, in the in some court in the Virgin Islands. Uh, in August of 2016, uh, a colleague of mine at The New York Times got a tip about a secret ledger in Ukraine which showed payments by uh, the Putin-backed president of Ukraine to Paul Manafort. And he began digging into that story. Uh, I was asked to help out on it because I believe Glenn had given sort of clips of stories that had been written about Paul Manafort to someone at the Times and I was asked to look into the lawsuit. So I think I was probably given the Yahoo News clip. I was having trouble finding the lawsuit. Mm -hmm. So I, that email you see to Glenn is me asking him, well, where mm -hmm. is this public lawsuit file mm -hmm. that's already been reported mm -hmm. about? So basically I'm asking him, you know, where's the court? That's, that's kind of the sum and substance Did you get of that under? email. Did you get other assistance from uh, GPS Fusion, uh, uh, Fusion GPS, to uh, work on, on Russia stories? 
Trump Russia. I uh, not uh, to be frank, Jeff. I not that I can recall. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I mean, let me put it. Th- let me put it this way: There's not a Russia story that I did that was based on a tip from Fusion GPS, and I didn't do many Russia stories. I th- the only story I did during the campaign uh, was that story, where I basically played a small role uh, in supplying supplemental information uh, to our story about the Black Ledger. Barry Meyer. You cite one particularly odious example of Fusion GPS investigating a reporter who was investigating one of their clients, John Kerry. Could you explain that? Sure thing. Um, so John Kerry, in 2015, started looking into Theranos, which was this high-flying uh, Silicon Valley company that claimed it had developed this revolutionary uh, method of running blood tests. You know, when you get a blood test, they usually draw a whole, you know, a large amount of blood out of your arm with a big needle. Therno said it had come up with this incredible method where they could just take, prick your finger, take a drop of blood and get the exact same quality of result as a traditional blood test. And, and John Carrier a- was a Wall Street Journal reporter who got tipped that there was a problem with this company, a big problem. A big company, a big problem, namely that the technology didn't work. And they were making representations both to uh, investors and more importantly to doctors and pharmacies that the technology worked, but it was producing false results. So not only was there potential for people to like lose a lot of money, but also for doctors to misprescribe drugs, come to false conclusions about their patient's health based on these uh, false results. So John, go ahead, I'm sorry. So what did Fusion GPS do to the reporter, John Carrier? Well, Fusion GPS says it was originally hired uh, to basically just do some sort of general, you know, survey of the medical testing industry uh, on Theranos's behalf. Uh, but shortly uh, around that time, they also, uh, Peter Fritz begins engaging with Peter, you know, with John Carreyou and offers initially to set up interviews, try to, you know, uh, mm-hmm. Soften intercede the on his behalf mm-hmm. with, um, with, the, with Theranos to get him an interview with Elizabeth Holmes, because Elizabeth Holmes was, you know, appearing in Fortune on television and basically getting asked all these softball questions. And John she was, had some, she was John, the, the founder and CEO. Of exactly. And Theranos. it's kind of sort of weird, charismatic figure, if you remember her, mm-hmm. you know, had her this dress like Steve Jobs in a black turtleneck, yeah. had her blonde hair pulled back, yeah. stared ahead with yeah, a striking thinking. figure. Yes. Uh, And John had very serious questions for her because he had very serious questions about the technology. So at a certain junction, there was like a parting of a ways between uh, Peter Fritch and John Carreyou. John Carreyou keeps investigating Theranos. He hasn't written anything about it yet, but apparently Fusion GPS wants to know or wants to provide information to Theranos' lawyers about what John 
Carrier is doing in terms of gathering information from government agencies. So they use a cutout, you know, an intermediary to make uh, requests of public agencies to try to glean what John Carrier, you know, the requests that John Carrier mm-hmm. has made of them for information about Theranos. Mm-hmm. And so, so they're I, investigating his investigation. They're certainly tracking it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and is there anything wrong with that? Well, let's let me finish the story and I'll let you okay. decide. Uh, so I was able to obtain these emails, which sh- shows essentially the discussion that's going on between Peter Fritch and this contractor that they're using because they don't want to file the request under Fusion, Fusion GPS, his name because that then will become public. They want to do it through a middleman's name. Mm -hmm. And so there are emails between Peter and this contractor in which they're trying to come up with a strategy to phrase this informational request so that, and I believe the exact language, you know, John won't know where, quote, specifically targeting him or let's figure out how to, Mm -hmm. quote, mask this. Mm-hmm. So I would ask Fusion that question. If, if they did not have problems with what they were doing, why were they so concerned about John Carreyou tumbling to what they were doing? You know, why were they concerned about masking their inquiries or, or not creating the impression that when that they were specifically targeting him mm-hmm. when everything seems to suggest that they were targeting his mm-hmm. requests. So their whole point was to use subterfuge to hide their investigation. They use a cutout, use a cutout. You can use, you can characterize it in whatever words you want, but they didn't do it in their own name. Was and Fus- I think, you know, that, that tells you a lot. Was Fusion GPS able to derail John Kerry and the Wall Street Journal's investigation? Thankfully, no one was able to derail John Kerry's investigation. And, you know, thanks to John Kerry, uh, Theranos cratered, collapsed, and is not hawking technology that is of danger to the public. Now, you write that the private investigations business is composed of a scattershot mix of people drawn to the work by money, the opportunity for travel and adventure, and the heavy rush of power that comes from spying on the lives of others. Sounds to me like there's not going to be any throttling of this business whatsoever. What do you see as the future here? Do you think, do you think your book will have any effect whatsoever on on the industry? I don't think it's gonna have any effect on the industry. Uh, And I don't think it's probably gonna have any effect on how the news business interacts with the industry. Maybe it'll make people more cautious when they're approached by by operatives using subterfuges. Uh, Maybe even some lawyers will go, meh, I can do it without these guys. Mm. Uh, But, you know, to address your question more directly, uh, there are people in the private intelligence business who say we're honorable, we're ethical, 
But when we go to clients, to law firms, you know, prospective clients to kind of put on presentations of our services, the first thing they'll say to us is, well, can you guys do what Black Cube does? You know, can you use that kind of subterfuge? Are you willing to like go that extra mile for us? So that's what the customers want. Mm-hmm. And that's what these firms are providing. Barry Meyer, it's been great to talk to you. I urge everyone to go out and get this uh, book of yours, Spooked, the Trump Dossier, Black Cube, and the Rise of the Private Spies. See you around, Pally. All right. Thanks so much, Jeff. Cheers. Jeff, that was really interesting and a lot for a lot of us to chew on, particularly those of us in the news media. Yeah, it's a, it's a troubling story. Anyway, come back next week for more material, provocative material like that from uh, Gene Meserve and myself. And also subscribe to Substack. Spy Talk's there. You'll find it with a lot of great stuff. I'm Gene Meserve. Take care. See you next week. Thank you. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.